Welcome to TLPA Fleet Forward, the podcast of the professional for hire transportation industry. TLPA Fleet Forward is brought to you by the Taxicab, Limousine, and Paratransit Association. Learn more about how they can help you grow your fleet at TLPA.org. Find them on Facebook and follow them on Twitter at TLPA Tweet. And now let's get to our show with your host, John Boyd. Greetings, fellow podcast people. Yep, you're in the right place because this is indeed the TLPA Fleet Forward podcast where we talk about for hire fleet management, trends, innovations, and anything else we want to jaw about. I'm John Boyd, and settle in because you want to hear what we're going to talk about today. And I'm joined by my co-host extraordinaire, Bridget Peary. Hi, Bridget. Hello, John. We keep her working pretty hard around here, so this is where she gets to just talk for a living. So welcome, Bridget. Thanks. Happy to be joining you, John. All right. All right, Bridget, why don't you tell us what we're in for today? Okay. We're going to talk about robot taxis, those things that are supposed to put every driver out of a job, right? Well, not so fast. A guy who is a professor at Harvard and MIT has crunched some numbers, and what he has to say may shock you. All right, but before we get to that, I hope everyone got a little ray of sunshine in the mail the other day. A bright yellow copy of Transportation Leader, TLPA's quarterly magazine. Um, Bridget, you helped put that together. You're instrumental in putting that together, in fact. So uh, I'm going to toss it over to you. What's in the latest issue? Thanks, John. I'm very excited about this issue of Transportation Leader. We've really tried to revamp the magazine to bring our readership high quality content and design that really draws the eye in. So trust me, you're going to want to grab this off the coffee table when you see it. That's awesome, Bridget. Uh, What was your favorite story in this issue? Well, I'm a big fan of our cover story, Bright Ideas for 2019. I know that everyone going into the new year is thinking about ways to make improvements, not just for their personal lives, but for their businesses too. And this issue's cover story features TLPA's own members who have been doing just that. From applying new software to increase efficiency and lower operating costs, delving into new areas of business, partnerships in unexpected places, or different ways to incentivize top-of-the-line drivers, readers will be inspired by these out-of-the-box ideas. And there was one, uh, there was one operator there who saved $100,000 uh, with a new idea about how he pooled some data. Um, so I guess, hey, if you're an operator and you like to save money, then I would suggest reading that story. Right, exactly. You're just not going to find those insights anywhere else. But I have to say, seeing these ideas on paper is nothing compared to hearing about them firsthand from our members at the upcoming Spring Conference and Expo in New Orleans. It's going to be a meeting of big, bold ideas. New Orleans, the Big Easy, the Crescent City, the place known for Mardi Gras, Jazz Fest, Alligator Po' Boys. Have you ever had an Alligator Po' Boy? I actually have never had an Alligator Po' Boy. Have you ever had a Po' Boy? Uh, also no. Okay. Well, <laughs> this could be your chance. Exactly. Uh, they also have beignets down there, which are delicious. Um, so it's all going to be happening uh, in New Orleans, April 24th to 26th. Um, and later on in the podcast, we're, we're going to talk um, with an operator down there who's going to give us the inside scoop on all things to see and do in New Orleans. John, I also hear there's a big announcement expected to be made. You are correct. On the first day of the uh, of the meeting, we're going to have a vote on renaming and rebranding TLPA for the next 100 years. 
This is a very, very big moment for the industry. It's a very big moment for the association. Um, and so we look forward to seeing everybody there for that really important thing. And, and I'm not going to give away what the name is just yet. I do happen to know uh, what, what they're floating, but um, you'll have to come to New Orleans to find out. Um, and we've got a lot of other great things that are happening down there on the agenda so far. On our preliminary agenda, you can, people can hear about total quality management. Um, we're going to be talking about a very big uh, a threat to the NEMT funding and how operators can respond. We're going to be talking about how to work better with brokers, which is always a hot topic in this industry. We're going to be talking about some of the new out-of-the-box ideas that you just mentioned um, that, you know, that were... Uh, that were showcased in the latest magazine. Uh, and we're even going to be talking about things like scooters and micro-mobility and things like that. This is all part of broadening the tent of TLPA as we look ahead um, to the future. So, all right, with that, Bridget, are you ready to get started with our podcast? I think I am, John. All right, well, let's start with a little news about robots. Here's a headline from NBC News a little over a year ago. Millions of professional drivers will be replaced by self-driving vehicles. Really? Well, the short answer is no. And that's why I wanted to talk to a guy named Dr. Ashley Nunes. He's a transportation researcher at Harvard. Oh, and he also happens to also hold a position right down the road at MIT, so there are not many people on the planet who can say they work at both places. Um, I saw a few pieces that Dr. Nunes has written that debunk the supposed imminent rise of the machines. And I said, hey, I need to meet this guy. So I sat down with Dr. Nunes recently at Harvard University. Dr. Nunes, thank you so much for, for uh, making the time. Um, now, you've received a good amount of press in recent months with, you've had articles in the Financial Times and uh, in the Globe and Mail and Harvard Business Review, and you're saying something a little bit shocking, perhaps. You're basically saying that uh, you are really questioning the business model of self-driving cars. Can you explain that? Sure. So the, you know, all the benefits associated with self-driving cars, when we talk about the safety benefits, uh, the environmental benefits, the benefits associated with uh, having a smaller land footprint come down to the technology being cost-effective. Um, and based on the numbers we have crunched, we do not believe if current market conditions persist that this technology will in fact be cost-effective. Um, specifically, it will be unable to compete with personal car ownership. In Harvard Business Review, you wrote uh, is it realistic to expect robo-taxis to become cost-competitive with owning older vehicles anytime soon? The answer, according to our analysis, is no. That's your quote. Can you break that down for me? Why is it not cost-competitive? Cost well, it's, you know, that particular piece looks at the life-saving benefits of driverless cars as it relates to poor people and um, impoverished individuals in the United States. And the reason why that matters is people often talk about safety uh, as being the, sort of the, the prime talking point for why this technology is necessary. 
but few people talk about who actually needs the technology. And it turns out that the people who need the technology the most are poor people in the United States. And that's because poor people are disproportionately more likely to die in car accidents um, compared to uh, rich people. There are a number of reasons why that's the case. One reason why is because poor people often own older vehicles that lack advanced safety features, things like uh, blind spot detectors you know, on, the, on the side of the car. So the price is incredibly important to these individuals. And if you are a low-income American in the United States, the cost of owning an older vehicle is about 51, 52 cents a mile. That's what it sort of works out to. And we have looked at this uh, autonomous vehicle uh, fleet, um, robo-taxis, if you will, and the, the best estimates based on current market conditions suggest that it will be on the order of about a dollar and 60 cents a mile. So it's more than three times the cost of older vehicle ownership today. And there are a number of reasons driving that cost, uh, but what's not driving the cost is what you hear the most about, which is the price of the autonomous vehicle itself. So most car companies say, oh, well, if we can just get the cost of the vehicle down, because it's, you know, it's an exorbitant amount currently, if we can just get the price of the vehicle down, then the economics are going to work. And it turns out, no, they aren't. The actual price that we used in our model when we tried to crunch some of the numbers was $15,000, which is less than half the price of what the average vehicle costs today. So at $15,000, uh, it's producing, a $15,000 autonomous vehicle is producing a cost per mile that is three times higher than what older vehicle ownership costs today. But can you make an autonomous vehicle for $15,000? I think you would be hard-pressed to do that. The best estimates I have seen suggest that the sticker price of an autonomous vehicle will be anywhere from $3,000 to $10,000 above what a vehicle costs today. So the simple answer is no. So how about, <clears throat> let, let's talk about Waymo One. Uh, this rolled out in Phoenix then. So they've rolled out a few hundred robo-taxis there. Um, how much are those vehicles? How, how much do those cost? Well, the sticker price of those vehicles is, of course, uh, a closely guarded secret. Uh, what, what else is being um, guarded very closely is what the price of those trips actually are. Now, most of the individuals um, who use Waymo One, and these are the early riders, essentially, that have signed up for this service and that Waymo has pre-screened, or have confidentiality agreements in place that basically say they can't talk about what the actual pricing mechanism is. That being said, Waymo is on uh, on record as saying it plans to offer fares that are competitive with uh, the likes of Uber and Lyft. So we have some sense of what those fares would be. So, so do you think that Waymo can offer a a, a fare? that is competitive with what Uber, for example, can offer today across the country? It's possible, yes, but it is unlikely, in my view, without Waymo taking a hit. Um, it's very hard to imagine that a company like Waymo could deliver the types of fares that Uber and Lyft are delivering um, without experiencing the same losses that Uber and uh, Lyft are experiencing. I, I don't see that happening. When these tech companies are looking to create um, taxi service, what, what amounts to taxi service, what is it that they're not getting 
in your opinion? What did, what did, what is the piece that you think they are missing or that they're not that they're not understanding about the business? Well, there are, there are two main issues currently. The first is the fact that taxis in general tend to be quite inefficient. Uh, they tend to be quite bad at matching supply with demand. And uh, now Uber and Lyft have fared slightly better in that regard. Uh, you know, there have been some studies that have been done on this. And generally speaking, they, they can have utilization rates of their vehicles that are, uh, in some instances, up to 60%, which is quite high. Um, the regular taxi industry has utilization rates of between 30 to 50%, depending on the market itself. But still, a 60% utilization means that you have 40% of miles that are traveled without a fare-paying passenger. So that's the first thing. A larger issue that this company, in fact, most companies that are playing in this space don't understand or choose not to understand, I would argue, is that the margins that they are looking for cannot be delivered at the price points they claim they're going to offer. So if you think, uh, let you know, we can take GM, Ford, Volkswagen, companies that have all said they want to launch their own robo-taxi services. Now, these are all automakers. The margins on a vehicle today tend to be in the order of about 8%. And these companies like GM and Ford have said that they want, as a consequence of using robo-taxis, they want to see those margins rise to between 20 to 30%. So it's a pretty significant jump is it possible? Yes, it's possible. But in order to deliver a 20 to 30% margin, you are going you are going to be unable to offer fares uh, that are cost competitive with Uber and Lyft. From the layman's perspective, if you take a car that has um, an awful lot of, of, of high tech on board, um, and that car gets in an accident, or or, or you need to tweak somehow the technology and you need to calibrate it. You need to make sure that it's running properly. You know, this isn't just a matter of pulling a car into a bay and banging out a, a dent and getting it back on the road. You're talking about people with PhDs who know how to calibrate this, um, whether it's LIDAR technology or, or what have you. But so, so isn't there, aren't there so many more costs to these vehicles than a car than a good old-fashioned car with a driver in it, let's say. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Uh, you know, a few months ago when I'd written the piece for the Financial Times, that's what we argued essentially is that you you know, you know have engineers who need to get paid a lot of money uh, to diagnose the problems associated with these vehicles. And that's certainly one part of uh, the cost problem that these companies have. But the other part, of course, that these companies are not talking about is you could have the best engineers in the world, you could have the most reliable fleet in the world, but if you are unable to accurately match supply to demand, you are not going to see the types of returns your investors are expecting to see. So yes, uh, you know, having human capital, skilled human capital that comes at a price is important, Having reliable technology uh, to move people around is important, but so is getting that technology uh, to people when they actually need it. And that's something that uh, Waymo, uh, you know, GM, Ford, etc., are not talking about. One thing that a lot of car manufacturers were talking about um, just even 18 months ago was 
how quickly all of this was going to roll out, it seemed. I mean, if we believed what was being written, uh, you know, say two years ago, we would have both arrived here for this interview in a, in a driverless car. But that didn't happen today, right? So um, why was it? Why, why was there so much hype? One could argue, I think a plausible argument could be made that saying that you are the or you will be the first one to deploy uh, a technology that is going to revolutionize the world increases your valuation. You know, the other possibility is that the individuals who are making these claims aren't necessarily adequately informed about the robustness um, and the merit of the claims they are actually making. I a few months ago, the Wall Street Journal, for example, had a they ran a piece in which. Um, I won't say which company, but you know, an auto, an automaker, the CEO of an automaker was on stage, and uh, this individual made all these claims about what his driverless car fleet was going to do, and a reporter in the audience walked up to one of the engineers and said, "Oh, is it true? It's your, the car is going to do all these things?" And the engineer looked at the reporter and said, "No, it's not going to do those things. I don't know why he said it was going to do those things because we have no idea how to do those things." So you know. Certainly part of it is, you know, these outlandish claims that you have where traveling in an autonomous car is going to cost you, you know, 10 cents a mile uh, and it's, you know, it's going to make a milkshake for you and, you know, you're going to be able to just achieve all these grandiose ideas and put all these plans into action are pretty far-fetched in my view. How far away are we, do you think, to, uh, to, to driverless technology becoming commonplace? And, and I'll preface, or let me put the caveat on that, that what does even commonplace mean? Well, I, I would put a more important caveat up front. I would say driverless does not mean humanless. So just because you don't have to drive and just because you don't have to monitor the vehicle doesn't mean that the vehicle is not being monitored. That's number one. And the reason why that matters, of course, is because it affects the price point um, of the vehicle and the price point of the services the vehicle itself can offer. In order to realize all these great benefits that auto execs keep telling us, they need to compete with personal car ownership. And that's a pretty heavy lift uh, based on the numbers we've crunched. Are there ways it could be done? Sure. One of the most important ways is by getting people to pool their rights. Right? So you and I don't know each other, but we hop in a car, it's together um, en route to a destination, you know, Lyft line, um, Uber pool, etc. The problem with this um, particular proposal is the fact that people don't want to pool rides. Right? So if you look at the National Household Travel Survey, the average vehicle occupancy in the United States currently on a per trip basis is about 1.63. So it's 1.63 people in a car. Based on the numbers we have crunched, we estimate you would need to in increase that to a minimum, a minimum of 2.2 people per car in order to offer a cost competitive fare. So think about that for a second. In order to break even, essentially, you need to increase the occupancy by nearly 50%. But in, But generally, it's the case that in order to incentivize pooling, companies give you a break, they give you a discount. And what that does is if you give someone a discount, you're going to need to squeeze even more people into the vehicle. And uh, in my view, at least, that, uh, that that has to be one heck of a discount for me to get into a car with four people. So, 
Well, it's interesting because you, what you're saying is that it's not just <clears throat> it's not just an economic decision that needs to be made by the passenger. It's a social change. It's it's changing the way we move around this country. These companies that are operating these fleets have to convince consumers it is somehow in their interests to change how they think about travel. And whether or not that can be done solely by appealing to a consumer's uh, wallet um, is unknown. What is the single greatest factor that matters? And it always comes down to cost. And if you can't get the cost right, you're wasting your time. Uh, and that seems to be something that these companies just take for granted. Uh, there seems to be this perception that, well, you know, driverless cars are a regulatory problem. They are an ethical challenge, um, but they're not an economic challenge. Oh, no, no, we, we, we've removed the driver. And as a consequence of removing the driver, uh, the economics work out. Now, if you look at companies like Uber... But you're saying that they don't work out, right? Even precisely, without the driver. Precisely, yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, if you look, you know, I think it was 2013, 2014, the Financial Times had crunched some numbers and they found that, I think, out of total uh, expenditures of 8.7 billion um, in a particular quarter, if I recall correctly, um, Uber spent about 7 billion paying out drivers. Mm -hmm. So again, there, there's certainly, you know, conventional wisdom would dictate, oh, well, just get rid of the driver and that's $7 billion we get to keep. But it's not quite like that. Um, if only it were that simple, but it's not, not, not even close. There are, there are these inefficiencies in the system. There are margins that are generally associated with the, the, the taxi industry uh, that taxi operators have long been able to collect upon um, because uh, of the way that the industry itself is designed. And moving to an autonomous uh, vehicle ecosystem uh, makes those challenges even more pressing, not less pressing. We know that Uber is subsidizing every ride heavily. Um, depending, it, depending on the market, yes. Depending on the market. Yeah. And what you're saying is that let's just we'll we'll pick on Uber for a second, sure. but let's say if Uber suddenly moved to an all driverless fleet, mm -hmm. um, they would have to subsidize those trips even more, and not by a little, but by two or three times what they're currently subsidizing them at. In in other words, what you're saying is it gets more expensive if, if the it, driverless model. Right. If it is the case that Uber wants to compete with personal car ownership, which is what its CEO is on record as saying. Mm -hmm. Their goal is to disrupt personal car ownership. Uh, and if that's what they want to do, that's absolutely correct. Um, they will need to cram a whole lot of people into those vehicles. And how you make those individuals want to do so uh, at a price point they are willing to pay and perhaps having some fun along the way is, uh, is in my view at least, uh, not going to be easy. You must be a real thorn in the side of Uber. They must hate you. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't. I've never heard from anyone over there. But, uh, but well, you know, I, I, I often say that it's important for for companies and for investors, for example, for that matter, to ask the right questions. And it's people accuse me of being a, a naysayer of driverless car technology. Then that's not true. I, uh, I think the technology holds considerable promise. But my role isn't to be optimistic about the technology or to be pessimistic about the technology my goal is to be realistic about the technology is there any advice that you would give to a fleet owner today of 
what they need to do to prepare for a future, whether it's with driverless cars or whether it's, you know, in the current environment of, of uh, ride hailing. Uh, you know, as you study transportation, what do you see in the, let's say, in the traditional taxi industry that you think needs to change in order to compete? You know, I've, I've joked with some colleagues that um, my advice to investors investing in driverless car technology is not to do so. Instead, just to go out and, um, and start their own taxi company that uses regular cars because you would, as, at least as a fleet owner, you mm -hmm. would see far larger margins hmm. than what you would see in the driverless car industry. Um, while expect while expending far less effort. Uh, that being said, I don't think that uh, transit operators, for example, right here in Boston, the MBTA, I don't think they have anything to fear with driverless cars. Um, you know, the cost of public transit is even lower than mm -hmm. personal car ownership. Uh, I don't think they have anything to fear. Um, I don't believe that taxi drivers need to worry about losing their jobs anytime in the near future when it comes to driverless car technology. Um, and I would say that for companies that are looking to invest in the technology to bring autonomous vehicles on board, that they should be prepared to accept that this technology will be incapable of delivering the, the continuity of service that a regularly staffed taxi would be able to do. And as a consequence of that, they should be prepared to operate a mixed fleet. So a fleet, for mm. example, where you have... Uh, you know, some autonomous vehicles and some regularly powered taxis. Mm -hmm. Dr. Nunes, thank you so much. This oh, thank you. Wonderful. That was Dr. Ashley Nunes speaking with me from Harvard University. If you want to learn more about um, some of his views and, uh, and read some additional writings of his, go to ashley-nunes.com, A-S-H-L-E-Y-N-U-N-E-S.com. If you've been reading TLPA's daily media watch and our newsletters, you may have seen that there is something big brewing in non-emergency medical transportation. The federal government is allowing an increasing number of states to waive their responsibility to provide Medicaid-funded trips to medical appointments. Now, this is a huge program, about $3 billion a year, that helps millions of low-income Americans get to life-saving doctor appointments. It affects people who need dialysis treatment, routine doctor appointments, children with special needs, and many others. And many TLPA members form the backbone of this essential transportation. But now, if states are granted waivers, that means they could try quote-unquote experimental solutions. So what does that mean? Well, Dave Sutton is one of the TLPA team members, and he's been researching and writing about this for our members. So I sat down with Dave at TLPA's offices just outside Washington, D.C. to boil this down for us. So Dave, this issue with NEMT, this really seems to be heating up. What do TLPA members need to know about this? The thing to know is that HHS... Um, Health and Human Services. Health and Human Services. They have proposed new coverage requirements and... Um, for the transportation benefit, 
and they have said that um, in March there will be a new proposed rule um, uh, regarding the regarding the benefit, and uh, there's going to be a, a discussion period before uh, a possible new rule is is announced. And again, this is the you know th these are the federal rules that will impact all states. Um, and give the give the states an opportunity to um, to alter or or even eliminate their their NAMT benefits. So, TL and basically, what you've got <clears throat> is you've got. Uh, I mean, this is something that people who are low income uh, through Medicaid they can right. get trans they can get trips to the uh, to the doc to the doc you know, for their doctor's appointments. Right. And the federal government wants to take this away from them because they believe that it's wasteful. Is that right? They're, they're trying to cut costs, or what's, what's behind all this? Well, uh, certainly, it certainly appears that way, that the, that the, that the federal government is, is trying to, to cut, this, uh, cut this benefit. Um, they, the way they posit it is they're trying to give states more flexibility. But that's the real takeaway: is that it it mostly affects um, poor people who are trying to use this um, non-emergency medical transportation as a way to get to me um, medical appointments, and it, it actually saves the system a great deal of money um, because it operates more efficiently. People miss less appointments, and uh, but the the government sees this as a way to. Uh, yes, to cut costs, and uh, but they call it giving a, giving the states more flexibility. And this could obviously affect TLPA members because there are uh, certainly in recent years a lot of taxi companies, for example, have uh, have moved into more paratransit operations. They've moved into a lot of NEMT work, um, and so I guess the the danger here is that. If that Medicaid waiver, if states are allowed to say to the feds, "Hey, we're not going to cover. We're we're going to we're going to come up with a new way of transporting these people. And we don't know what that is yet. Um, we're going to experiment with some ideas." Number one, it sounds like the, the the those transportation companies could be cut out of that business. And number two, and more importantly for our country, uh, we've got millions of people who rely on these trips to get to, to life-saving uh, uh, medical appointments. They could be left out in the cold. Definitely. It, this looks like a way to further shrink um, the benefit, the transportation benefit and requirement, um, which would, of course, reduce the amount of trips happening in states across the country. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a, from a business standpoint, and from a humanitarian standpoint, it's a, a real point of uh, the the time is now to take a look at this issue, and uh, and and TLPA is doing that. And, and there are uh, and there are states right now who have already enacted such waivers. Is that right? Like they're already saying, no, we're not going to do Medicaid trips anymore. We'll do something else. Right. Well, there there are there are there are a few states that have already. Um, eliminated uh, Medicaid for, for poor populations, but there are about five or six states that are looking at waivers and are in the waiver process. Um, it takes a quite a while to, to get a waiver, um, and 
part of the, the thinking with this new announcement by the federal government is that they're going to make it easier. It may not even be a waiver. The, the Fed, federal government may say, look, you can in your state plan, you can simply decide that you don't want to provide NAMT to certain populations. So what may happen is, the, the, is that this announcement, this new rule may make it easier for states to simply opt out of it. Mm. And so that's a, that's a concern in a couple of ways because it'd be much faster right. and much easier for the states to right. get out of. Um, so, so while, the, right, this is, while this has been a slow burn, you know, maybe over the past year or so, what you're saying is that it could accelerate and all of a sudden we could see have a domino effect of different states being toppled not you know different right. states suddenly or a lot of states all of a sudden at once saying we're not going to pay for these medicaid trips we'll do some other experimental program to get people to their doctor's appointments exactly it could make them a, a, a again a federal waiver that that's time consuming and and it requires a lot of interaction um, but just changing it in the state plan is is much faster and easier, and uh, and so it, it it would the 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 impact on business would be a lot faster hmm. uh, for taxi companies and and um, that are provi- that are providing this transportation benefit and and relying on it for business. All right, well, thank you very much, Dave and uh, Dave has uh he's been researching this quite a bit and i know you've got um you have well we put a blog up on um, tlpa's website but more importantly we also have a longer article in the latest paratransit newsletter written by dave um and uh, you had mentioned also that the um our government relations for tlpa is heavily involved in this and they're looking at um they're keeping tabs on this so it's the long way of saying, and it sounds like you would agree, Dave, that if you're a TLPA member and you're doing any MT transport, you got to get involved in this. And if you're not a member, you need to become one right now because this could affect you. Absolutely. That was Dave Sutton, who has been following the NEMT issue closely. Be sure to read the article he wrote in the March issue of TLPA's paratransit newsletter on this issue. And if your company works in NEMT, You really can't afford to miss the big discussion we're having on this topic at the TLPA Spring Conference and Expo on April 24th and 25th. It all takes place in New Orleans, so if you want to get up to speed on this issue, be sure to get yourself there for this important discussion. Speaking of New Orleans, we all know that when you travel, it's always nice to have a little local knowledge about what to see and do. And that's why, ahead of the Spring Conference and Expo, April 24th and 25th, I called up Jason Coleman, a TLPA member who owns Coleman Cab in New Orleans. Jason joined me by phone to give me the skinny on the Big Easy. Okay, Jason, I want to start right off the bat with a burning question. Is there really such a thing as an alligator po'boy? Yes, there's several ways to uh, skin an alligator. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's the alligator po' boy, which is, of course, made of sausage, which you can make anything out of sausage, including deer meat and uh, something we like to call boudin, adding rice to the meat, uh, a nice spicy mixture. Uh, there's also alligator cheesecake that can be found at Giacomo's. 
Okay, give me the Jason Coleman top three things to see in New Orleans if you've never been there before. Well, if you've never been to New Orleans and experienced Bourbon Street, that is something to behold in itself. Um, it is a nighttime uh, festivities with all kinds of entertainment from music uh, to uh, burlesque shows, whatever you're in the mood for, it's there. Uh, secondly, I would say go to Frenchman Street, where it's a little bit more of a mature crowd and uh, still live bands, uh, food eateries like Snug Harbor. Uh, we have basically uh, open carry law for alcohol. So therefore, you can go from spot to spot and enjoy yourself. Okay, then given that we've established New Orleans is a town that truly knows how to have a good time, where's the best place for a world-famous beignet and a very strong cup of coffee the next morning? Yes, uh, our beignets, uh, Café de Mont, uh, our famous uh, hot donuts, uh, always can be found uh, right there at Decatur Street. And um, I think that is a uh, signature of visitation to New Orleans. Now, as if TLPA's conference weren't reason enough to visit New Orleans, there's also something else going on at that very same time, isn't there, Jason? Yes, and, and don't forget that we do have double duty because we will have one of the biggest uh music festivals in the nation with Jazz Fest, and we'll be celebrating our 50th. So it's going to be bigger and better with uh, more acts than um, any other festival. Uh, best bang for the buck. Awesome. Jason, I can't wait, and I look forward to seeing you there. You too, John. Look forward to seeing you. That was Jason Coleman, a TLPA member who owns Coleman Cab in New Orleans. Well, there's that music, and that means we've come to the end of another TLPA Fleet Forward podcast brought to you by the Taxi Cab Limousine and Paratransit Association. If you're a transportation fleet owner and you are not yet a member of TLPA, what are you waiting for? Find out how TLPA can help you grow your fleet at tlpa.org. Email us at info at tlpa.org. Find us on Facebook at TLPA and follow us on Twitter at TLPA Tweet. My thanks to my co-host, Bridget Peary, and I'm John Boyd. So until the next time, and until we see you in New Orleans, let's keep those fleets moving forward, everybody.